Please turn with me in your Bibles first to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. And also, if you could, at the same time, have your finger on another part of the Bible as well, which is Ephesians chapter 1. So it's Romans chapter 3. We're going to be reading a few verses from Romans chapter 3. And also Ephesians, the book of Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be reading some verses as well from Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at the topic here this evening found in question 30 and 31 of the Westminster Larger Catechism, which really deals with man's condition after the fall of man. Last week, last Sabbath evening, we looked at original sin and asked the question, why is the world so filled with suffering? Why is the world the way it is? We all know that there's a problem. All groups in the world seem to have an idea that there's a problem. But what is that problem? And it's important for us to get this, to understand this, that God gave man a paradise, something wonderful, something glorious. And we are essentially the problem. It's man's sin. Man, a mere creature made of the dust of the earth, Dare to stand against the infinite and holy God. He thought he was better than God. He, he thought to trust another creature. If you think about it, he trusts a snake. Rather than God who made all these things. Sin, as we see many times daily, is absurd. It's absurd to stand against God. And what was man promised if he sinned? He was promised... Adam, who is the head of all mankind, this is why sin is spread unto all men, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Death was promised. God keeps his promises. We notice from Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, that God promised death upon eating of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And on paper, at that point, if we... If we just stop there, perhaps you stop reading at a certain section of Genesis chapter 3, right before Genesis chapter 15. You might think, oh, okay, that's it. Close the book, we're done. It looks pretty bleak. The mistake we often make in this fallen world is sometimes asking, why does God not save everyone? People struggle with this. And I think we have to frame it in the way we framed it there. It was created as a paradise. We sinned. And we have to start asking the question, not why does God not save everyone? But the question we're going to ask him this evening, why does God save anyone? See the difference? You'll see it in the world. People struggle with this question. If God is almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, why doesn't he save everyone? The real question is, why does he save anyone? That's the amazing thing. That's the wonderful thing. Man is dead, trespasses and sins. He is a slave to sin. And it's important that we start with the right question. Why does he save any of us? Our sins, we would like to lessen them, wouldn't we? Our sins are treason. 
Remember what the, the, the penalty was for treason many years ago against the king. And when we sin against God and we reject him, we essentially were trying to put ourselves on the throne, not God. This is what it means to sin against God. And what do we deserve when we try to rebel against God, the true and rightful king? Hell and the wrath of God. So first we're going to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. And verses 9 to 20 of Romans chapter 3 are going to point out what is the condition of all mankind because of this fall. And then in Ephesians, we're going to see why does God save any of us at all? Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, let us hear God's holy word. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And please now turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're just going to be reading from verse 3 to verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. Where essentially we're going to be asking the question, well, why does he save anyone? It looks pretty bleak. We're not seeking out after God. And here is... Largely the reason why God saves anyone. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he, ha- he made us acceptable in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he proposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you 
also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and his infallible word. Now you may be here this evening having read this, and you may be a believer for many years. This topic is certainly for you. And why it is so that we grow in our gratitude toward God for what he has rescued us from. How unworthy we all are. And the sense of our sin that we have more appreciation for God's mercy and his love. You may be here and perhaps you've been backsliding. Perhaps people don't know about it. Maybe in some areas... Some of the things you were faithful to in the past, you're no longer faithful to. You start to see church as an added extra to the week, but not the most important thing. This topic is certainly for you. To remind us all, really, of why God has saved any of us at all, and what purpose we have been saved for. You may be here for many years attending the church, You may have been baptized, and praise God, we saw a wonderful baptism this morning. You may have attended Sabbath school in your youth, but never grasped, truly, really grasped in your heart how unworthy you are of this grace of God. And you may even believe that God owes you something. And it's a dangerous place to be. You may not know him at all. The topic is most certainly for you. And you may be none of those categories that I just mentioned. But you're a sinner. And you need salvation. This topic is most certainly for you. So the first point we're going to be looking at, looking at these two texts, um, and ask the question, why does God save anyone? Because we looked at, from the beginning, it looks pretty bleak, doesn't it? God promises death. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, if you do sin, there's another way. But God mercifully does provide another way. And why does he do that? Well, the first reason we're going to look at, he delights. Notice I always say delights in mercy. He delights in mercy. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. We'll just be taking a few selections from this section of God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every spiritual blessing. And then in verse 5 it says this, Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. The good pleasure of his will. Let's put that into really simple English. He wanted to. He wanted to. God found this pleasing. And dear friends, if it wasn't pleasing before God, it would not happen. It would not happen. Micah 7 verse 18 says this. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. Who does not retain his anger forever? 
Because he delights in mercy. That's our God. That's the amazement. In my case, it says, who is a God like you? And of course, there is no God like him. He loves to forgive. Show mercy, to show pity. He is the one who shows mercy. It says in Psalm 103. At the beginning of Psalm 103, it says this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then in verse 3, it says this. Who forgives all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Actually, literally in the Hebrew, it's almost like he is the forgiving one. The forgiving one. That's who God is. He is the merciful one. He is the one who delights to forgive, to show mercy. And he delights so much to forgive and to show mercy. We saw it this morning with that gracious sign and seal of baptism. It's one of the reasons why he's set before us. Graciously showing us, setting before us this picture the inner washing that we all need. Our God is a God who delights to forgive. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think if we ever fall into sin? He delights to show mercy. In Christ, he forgives. And why? Question 30 of the Westminster Larger Catechism says this. Doth God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Notice the question. Does he leave them all there? Because that's surely what we deserve. And that is the first question we need to ask. Answer, God doth not leave all men to perish in the estate of sin and misery, into which they fall by the breach or breaking of the first covenant, commonly called the covenant of works. But of his mere love and mercy delivereth his elect out of it and bringeth them into an estate of salvation by the second Covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace. The covenant of works was with Adam. Perfect personal obedience was required by Adam in the Garden of Eden. And there were sacraments in the Garden. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And when the breaking of that covenant, they are driven out from the Garden and the presence of the tree of life. They have broken this first covenant. Because in the first covenant, what is required? Per- perfect personal obedience. It bring, the first covenant in Adam brings nothing but today, death and wrath of God. There's a sense in which, and you might even see this in the Gospels, there's two ways to salvation. Now, hear me now before you think I'm becoming dodgy. If you can keep the law perfectly in every jot, in every tittle, of course, you've got Adam's sin as well on top of it. Then you can come before God. Of course, that describes no one except for Christ. And sometimes the Lord, when he's witnessing to people, he'll talk like that. Have you kept the commandments? And they think that they have. They think they've kept it all. But they haven't. And Jesus will sometimes probe and ask questions to expose the fact that they haven't kept that covenant of works, as it's called here. This was the, the covenant with Adam. He failed. And, dear friends, we, on a daily basis, break that covenant ourselves. It's a broken covenant. And this morning, we were looking at washing and 
The idea of being dirty and having to be clean before God and pure. And this is why we need to be washed. Because of that first covenant being broken. Now, that covenant still needs to be kept by someone. I hope you know where I'm going with this. There's a first Adam, but there's, someone, there's another in the place of Adam who keeps that covenant which is broken. The Lord Jesus Christ. And by being in him, we're a pleasant aroma. No longer the stench of our sin. We naturally gravitate, even ourselves. Think about ourselves, right? Sometimes you might think, oh, isn't that like too perfect of a standard for God to be seeking from us? But we even naturally gravitate towards things that are clean ourselves, don't we? I mean, we try and get our dog groomed every few months or something like that. And then when the dog comes back from the groomers, I find myself, the dog's there sitting on my lap for half the day. I don't do that right before the groomers because the dog's a bit smelly. But we naturally gravitate towards things that are clean. The first night, you, you go into bed in those clean sheets. And you go, ah, and it just, just feels so... We naturally want to be around things that are clean, even ourselves. Well, to be in the presence of God, we too need to be clean. And we need mercy, because we're not. We're not clean. We're not pure. God also delights to forgive Isn't that a wonderful thing? A pure, righteous, holy God delights to forgive sin. Doesn't that give us reason to praise him, to glorify him, to delight in him? Let's think about ourselves. Do we enjoy to forgive? It's a hard thing to do, isn't it? Someone has done you wrong. Someone who has said something to you that's been deeply offensive and hurtful. Somebody probably even close to you has gained your confidence and then perhaps abuse that confidence? Do we enjoy to forgive? The more, dear friends, we are ready to forgive people who have done us wrong, the more Christ-like we are. Isn't that an amazing thing? It's, it's hard. And it's something we need to constantly work. We, we, we naturally will hold a grudge. But we struggle with forgiveness. Do you enjoy to forgive? And the more we enjoy to forgive, the more we're like God the more we are being changed into his image. So why does God save anyone? He delights in mercy. But he also, the second reason we're going to look at here this evening is he delights in grace. He delights in grace. Now this might sound like the same thing again, but the first one is more to do with forgiveness. This one is more to do with grace in general. He loves to give. He loves to give. First is about sinners, but this is more in general. Now, even as mere creatures, as mere creatures, created creatures, finite creatures, and the infinite God, we depend on God for everything. Even if we hadn't sinned, we depend on him for every breath and for everything. You could even say that Adam depended on the grace and the gifts of God even before he fell. He depended everything for God. And you see, we have a God who loves to give. If he didn't, he wouldn't do it. Everything you have in your life is an evidence of that. Verses 7 down to verse 9 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches, look at that phrase, the riches of his grace. 
the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. He hasn't just given us, as amazing as it is, forgiveness and mercy, he's given us more than that. Has he given you wisdom, dear friend? Has he given you understanding? As it says here in our text, it says uh, in verse 8, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, or prudence or understanding. Understanding. And if we have wisdom, spiritual wisdom, and the way that it matters towards salvation is because it comes from God. It comes from God. He didn't just save us, dear friends, to follow the world and to do what everybody else is doing. He didn't even save us to fit in with popular culture or popular church culture or whatever the thing may be. He saved you to give you something wonderful. Wisdom. Understanding. To walk in a different way. Seeing, when when you have wisdom and understanding, you see how finite and tiny we are. And how puny we are. And how, how we can get things wrong. And we do get things wrong. And it makes us more dependent on the word of God. Because you actually have more of a sense of how little we know. In a sense, that is wisdom. The beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. We see that in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Think of Solomon. We think of wisdom, we think of Solomon, don't we? Immediately in the Bible. And what was one of the first things Solomon asked for? It says this in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said... You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne. As it is this day, now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. Look what he says here. This is Solomon speaking. But I am a little child. I'm a little child. We don't like to say things like that, do we? We, we don't like to say, um, we don't like to sound like the fool in the room. So I, I don't understand this. I was listening to something in, in, in a business room the other day, and the guy is like a, a business leader, and he would say, I don't mind being the idiot in the room. And people like to go to him for consultancies. He said, be okay, ask people. Find out from people who know what they're talking about. There's a humility there. And Solomon says here, I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Ah, Solomon, you're being a little bit too, you might be saying it. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. A great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give your servant an understanding heart. I need a heart to be able to lead these people, to judge your people. Why? That I may discern between good and evil. Discernment. I remember Spurgeon putting it like this. Discernment is not just between the right and the wrong. It's between right and almost right. There's so many things in the Christian walk. It can just sound close, but there's something wrong with it. And discernment comes from wisdom. And it comes from God. And Solomon sees, when he sees the great challenge before him, He realizes how little he knows. And he realizes he needs wisdom 
That's a, basically a skill and experience that comes from God. That's what he asks for. He doesn't ask for riches. He doesn't ask for power, the death of his enemies, all sorts of stuff he could have asked for. But what was God's response to that? It was God was pleased with it. He not only gave him wisdom, but he gave him victories and he gave him wealth beyond imagination. And what do we see from this episode? God loves to give. And because Solomon was seeking what he should be seeking first and foremost, which is wisdom, he's not seeking the wealth of the world, he gave these other things as well. There's nothing that holds us back from being rich. In that sense, God is not powerless, but he knows what we need above all else. He will give us what we need. What we need above material goods or anything else like that, above all things, is wisdom. Wisdom. And God's grace, their riches. He, you know, if somebody gives you money, and perhaps their bank account is just wiped out. They don't have riches. Their, their bank is empty. But with God, his riches of grace. Not only does he love to give, he has infinite resources. But we can often be the opposite of that, can't we? We can be poor in grace toward others. And this is an area we should seek to be like God. We should also love to give. And I don't just mean our money. Money can be part of it. But our time. Our time. Time is one of the most precious things you can give anyone. There are so many elderly people in homes alone. And there's people who go visit them. Their time. It's just a wonderful thing. Uh, giving of ourselves, being gracious to others, thinking the best that we possibly can think of them. This is not talking about being naive. There's naive, and that's not good either. But we should think the best of people. God loves to show grace. He loves to give wisdom and understanding. This is why any of us are here. This is why we're not out in the world. This is why we're not out doing all the things that the world does at the weekend. He has given us wisdom and understanding. If a people, if the church ever, if a church professing to be church comes to a point where they have no interest in the things of God, if they have no wisdom in the things of God, if they have no appetite for the things of God, and what they start doing is they start looking for entertainment. This God who loves to give is no longer satisfying. If the church ever becomes boring, we will remake the church to be like the world. And you see a lot of churches have become like rock concerts. He loves to give. Is what he gives enough for us. He loves to give us wisdom. And then, number three now, so he delights in mercy, he delights in grace, he delights in glory. He delights in glory. And isn't it wonderful that he delights in these things? This is why our salvation is so sure. He delights in mercy, he delights in grace, otherwise we'd have no hope. And he delights in the glory, and God's glory, we have got to be, this is something that's very easy to go wrong. Sometimes, there have been groups throughout the centuries have thought you can increase 
the glory of God. You can't. God's glory is always the same. It cannot diminish. It cannot be greater. But we mere creatures have the pleasure and the privilege of being able to see snippets of his glory shining forth. We have the great privilege of exalting him. And he is glorified in our salvation. It says this in verses 12 and 14 of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 12. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. That we, us, you, everyone here who has trusted in Jesus Christ. That we should be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. He delights in glory. And there's nothing more glorious than God. Pure glory, pure light, pure splendor, pure radiance. Something where the shine Never goes off. Have you ever seen a new car, brand new car? It's so shiny at the beginning. But after maybe even a month or two, the shine starts to fade. The splendor of God never, ever fades. The Nicene Creed says, true light from true light. That light never, ever fades. And it's to the praise of God's eternal plan. Now, We have to make sure as well that we know that God is not surprised by the fall. He's glorified in all these things. God is not surprised by the fall. It is one eternal plan. In that plan or decree, he elected or chose all who would be saved. This is why any of us are here. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He says in verse 4, just as he chose us in him, that's Christ Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Notice how it's not we made a decision or something we did. We've got to make sure we use biblical language when we talk about how we come to Christ. We repent and believe the gospel, but even that repentance is a gift from God. Why did you repent and why did you believe? Because God showed mercy. I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. Romans chapter 9. If that were not the case, if it it was just God stretching out his heart, which he does, and the gospel is available to all, calling all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel, none would come. That's the condition of man. There's none good. No, not one. There is none seeketh after God. No, not one. There is none who is even like out there. You know, we think about God. uh, Man is seeking for religion. And eventually stumbles upon it. He's not seeking for religion. When Paul was on the road to Damascus. He was heading there to torture. To intimidate the church. The modern church would tell you, oh, well, he had a change of mind along the way. No. God changed him. God gave him a new heart. So then when he he spoke to the Lord, he said, Lord, 
He says Lord to the Lord Jesus Christ. Up until that point, he thought it was a ridiculous thing to follow Christ. He delights in glory. And the Lord is glorified in the salvation of men. Because they couldn't come unless he showed mercy to him. God is so powerful, so amazing. Even to look upon the heavens and the earth. The psalm describes it this way. Psalm 113 verse 6. Speaking of God, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heavens and in the earth. Imagine that. God has to humble himself in order to even behold the heavens and the earth. Our minds, because we're creatures, we can't wrap our minds around that, can we? We're reminded of his greatness. We're reminded of his glory and his power. And if... If in our salvation, if in our redemption, God does it because he delights in his glory. And this is why it happens. How much more in our worship? We're here in worship this evening. It has to be solely de gloria to the glory of God alone. The salvation, that's one of the five solas of the the Reformation, has to be about the glory of God alone. Because God delights in his glory. He delights in glory, but there's no greater glory than his own glory. And so when we come before God, it cannot be about, well, this person would like this in worship, this person would like this in worship. We must come to the scriptures, the pure stream of pure water that tells us, oh Lord, how would you wish to be worshipped? I remember listening to a man describe it this way. A man was at a restaurant. This is not unique to me at all, but a man was at a restaurant. He ordered the steak. Goes to the, orders the steak from the restaurant, and the guy in the restaurant comes back, and he brings him the salmon. I said, that's not what I ordered. Yes, but the chef would like to give you the salmon. And I remember always remembering that analogy to try and remember when we come before God, What does he want? And his way is far more glorious than our way. His way is wonderful. And the Father, one of the reasons we are, this happens as well, because the Father delights in the Son. Do we delight in the Son? Do we delight to worship him? He is glorious. The Son delights in the Father, because the Father is glorious. And they both delight in the Holy Spirit. Because he is glorious. And this is why this is all possible. The glory, the splendor, the majesty of God is why we're all here this evening. And our final point is he delights in righteousness. He delights in righteousness. So we've looked at he delights in mercy. He delights in grace. He delights in glory. And he delights in righteousness. Again, when we think of delights, he, here's what he likes. And here's what he dislikes. And here's the thing. What God likes is far more important than what I like and dislike. My likes and dislikes have to start changing to be more like God's. And am I there yet? No, not at all. But God delights in righteousness. God can show mercy. He can show grace. And he can be glorified in all these things for one reason. 
that one man has kept the law perfectly. And so no longer will we be viewed this way anymore. Romans chapter 3 once more. Romans chapter 3 to remind ourselves of what it is said about the Jews and the Greeks. Now, another way of thinking of that is the Jews were the true religion, the true faith. They were. And the Greeks was basically anybody outside of the church. You could almost think of it like this, Old Testament church and everybody outside of the Old Testament church. Now, what does this say? What then, are we better than they? And you could even say in modern terms, hey, are we here in the Protestant church any better than the Roman Catholics, the atheists or anybody else for that matter, the pagans, the devil worshippers even? No, not all, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks, everybody, that they are all under sin. And he, then he quotes from the Psalms. This is from Psalm, as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. And he's quoting here from Psalm 14. There is none who understands. There is none who even seeks after God. Isn't that amazing? You know, when you think of if somebody was imprisoned unjustly and somebody released them, you think, oh, that's a noble deed, isn't it? But here you have somebody who deserves to be in prison. That's us. And not only that, he doesn't even seek to escape it. He loves his prison. He loves his sin. And yet God goes in there, gives him a heart and a desire to seek the medicine, which is him, and he escapes from that horrible prison. And only then, when he's got his eyesight, he can actually see what a squalor he's in. And he previously loved it. We don't see how much God has rescued us from. Now, here's what the Lord has rescued us from. Here's what we've become And then it says in verses 19 and 20 of Romans chapter 3, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. No one in their works can be acceptable before God because of what has just been quoted here. But he delights in righteousness. This is why the wrath of God is on unrighteousness. He delights in his son who is the king of righteousness. He delights in these things. It says in verse 7. In him we have redemption. Verse 10. It says this. And this is Ephesians chapter 1. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together all things in Christ. And we were talking about union with Christ this morning. In Christ, in him, gather together in him. It says in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. In Christ, brought into that union and communion with Christ and through him. As we said this morning, his death becomes our death. So no longer will we need to die. Death has been crushed but also at the same time his righteousness becomes ours and that's how we can be saved 
Because Christ's righteousness has become our righteousness by faith and by faith alone. And God does not have to diminish his glory in one iota, one scintilla in any way in order to look upon us with delight. The infinite God. It's an amazing thing. God does not set aside his justice for anyone. But it's all been satisfied. He can delight in us. He he has set his love upon us. It says in Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 to 8. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. A special treasure. Isn't that that wonderful? A special treasure above all peoples on the face of the earth. Now, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. Why? But because the Lord loves you. He set his love upon you. He loves you. That's why. And he can delight in you because of the righteousness of Christ. And because he would keep the oath, it says in Deuteronomy 7, which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage. And the hand of of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, we too have been redeemed from the house of bondage. Slavery, sin, our own sin. Do we delight in righteousness? Do we delight in these things that God delights in? This is why we're saved. If we have trusted in him and him alone, it is because God has looked upon us and showed pity to us. It's not because one day you thought better of your sin and then, hmm, I'm going to do this. It's not of the will of man. It's of the will of God. God took pity on you. Now, why did he take pity on you than another person? We're not told in the scriptures. But God has a holy, righteous reason for this. We're told enough that we're in awe that he would even save us. Why me, oh God? I could spend an eternity in hell. There are far better people. There are far better people than I who will spend an eternity in hell. Far better people. But I've been the recipient of mercy and grace and peace. Something I do not deserve. I cannot wrap my mind around it. There are people, they're they're lost. They may be even very religious. You'll see them around. But they are not trusting Christ alone. And then a wretch such as I. We're all wretches. But a wretch such as I. Eyes were opened. And we almost have to say, oh Lord... But for the grace of God, I would not be here. But for the grace of God, I'd be out in the world and have no interest. It's all of God and it's all of grace. Salvation is of the Lord. And we can have confidence in these things. Because God delights in these things. Do we? And do we love to praise him? Glorify him? Honor him? Because of what he delights. And think about this. As we go through our Christian life, what he wants above all else matters most. Our desires, our preferences, our will, whatever, that has to come a distant second. And in fact, 
our will has to be changed. What we want has to be changed and conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Amen.